Good morning again. I uh, want to thank those, uh, those of you who have helped out this morning and have uh, been involved in the preparation so far. Today's a fairly big day for us. Um, seven years is a, uh, quite a long time, isn't it, when you think of it? Seven years have gone by like that. And God, and God seems to have a special place for the number seven. In the, in the word of God and he created the world and he created the world in six days and, and rested on the seventh and um, there's a few other things that, uh, that occurred within sevens and, and there's, a, um, uh, there's, a, there's a peace or a rest that you're meant to give the land as well in that time so maybe it's time for a bit of a rest but I don't think so uh, I think God's continuing to work um, the tribulation also went for seven years um, but we haven't had a tribulation over here it's been a blessing for those seven years and we're looking forward to, uh, to what the Lord is, is continuing to do. He seems to be multiplying and, uh, and, and blessing our hearts each and every year as it goes by. And today I want to focus on uh, this whole thing about we're having baptisms today and we're doing a whole lot of things um, some of us may not be familiar with and some of us will be familiar with. And I'd like to uh, look at the passage of scripture we read for our morning service, which was uh, Acts chapter 2. Verse 36 to 42, or a portion of it at least. And today we'll be doing something a little bit differently than what we normally do. We'll, we'll have our service, we'll have our, um, our, the, the, the sermon this morning, and then uh, we'll probably need about 15 or so minutes for the candidates to get themselves ready. Uh, so they'll go out and start getting themselves ready, and I'll ask some of the men if they would start bringing some chairs across into that pool area out there and get ourselves uh, ready to sit around the actual pool. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, uh, to a great afternoon. And then we're going to come back after all that. We're going to have a communion time together. And then we're going to have a lunch together. And we're going to have a business meeting. We're going to invite in all the new members. And uh, it's going to be rather exciting. So let's have a read of, uh, of this passage again. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. It says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptised, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Let's, uh, let's pray before we uh, get into this sermon. Father, we just thank you once again for this blessed day. We thank you for... Uh, these seven years in which you have blessed us, guided us, protected us, and Father, helped us to grow. So Father, I just pray that uh, today would give you the glory and the honour that you would be the centre of today's attention, that the name of Jesus would be lifted up in this place, and that our focus wouldn't be on ourselves at all, Father, because it is all about you. God, we just want to glorify Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, and we want to remember the wonderful sacrifice that he made for us on Calvary's tree. And Father, as we rejoice to see people who follow uh, you and your commandments, Father, in baptism, and as we celebrate the Lord's table together, and as we vote in new members, Father, I pray that all these things would be done to glorify you. 
And we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that you've preserved it for us. And we thank you that we can turn to it and trust every word in it. And I pray this morning that you would use me to help and uh, exhort, to edify my brothers and sisters here in the truth, that we might live lives that are more, more glorifying to you, that we would live uh, lives as ambassadors in this world, being conformed to the image of our Saviour. Thank you once again for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. As I've mentioned, today's an exciting day for us, a very exciting day. And we celebrate, today the focus will be on three significant aspects of uh, church. Uh, the first thing we'll celebrate is looking back at seven years um, of being in a, a Faith Baptist Church and how God planted this particular church and how we started off. And we may reminisce, do a bit of reminiscing today. And um, be patient with us because those of us who have been here started off in a, in a little scout hall seven years ago on Sunday mornings and you'd hear that it was right next to a football ground and cricket oval and you'd be there on a Sunday morning and, and the, uh, they'd be playing a game of football right next to you and you'd hear people screaming and sometimes swearing and saying things that you weren't, uh, you weren't uh, quite happy about but there'd be whistles blowing and all, all types of things going on in the middle of a service and Eventually, God led us to this place over here. So we've been, uh, we've been blessed by the Lord uh, during that time. And we started off, I think it was 13 people. Um, and, uh, and it's good to see the way God's been adding to his church. The other two things that we celebrate today are the baptism of five people. Now, baptizing five people is quite a significant thing. Um, we haven't had a baptism for a little while, but five people putting up their hands and saying, I want to obey the Lord's command is a great thing to see. And it will be an encouragement to the rest of us to see that God is continuing to add to his church and also to bless and see people obey. And finally, we, we celebrate the adding of new members to the church. Um, it's, it's nice to see people um, growing in the church. And that's one aspect of, of church life, that the people who are in the church that receive a, um, uh, the, the doctrine and, uh, and get a blessing from the preaching are meant to be growing. This is what we call our progressive sanctification as God continues to work within us to help us to grow to maturity. But it's nice to see new people being added to the church as well. It's nice to see that God continues to add the same way he did almost 2,000 years ago, or probably more. Um, it says that he continued to add daily daily to the church. So the message today will centre around these aspects of church life. And what we're going to do is compare what's happening today with what happened back then. We're going to look at those two things. And, I, and my hope for you today is that you will understand that what is happening today is a continuation of what happened then. That significant event changed the course of human history. And we are part of that. Because God has not stopped adding to his church. What the Holy Spirit did at, the, at that specific time with the apostles, he's continuing to do today in the hearts of people. He is still doing the same things that he did then. So we're going to praise God for what he's done. So, the purpose of the church is to glorify God. God planted his church and started his church to glorify himself. And the Bible says that we throughout all of eternity will be glorifying him and he will use us as, as a showpiece to show the entire universe and the angelic realm about how gracious and loving and kind he actually is. 
Because when God holds up his church and says, look at this group of people over here, none of them deserved anything at all. They were rebellious against me. They hated me. They were sinners. They had turned against the truth. And God was able to somehow take us out of the despair of hell and the, and the, and the sin that we were in and has now transformed us and transported us into his beloved kingdom. So God will use us as almost a jewel to say, look how beautiful, look at the beautiful work that I've actually done here. And we can't claim any credit for that. We can't claim any credit at all because God has done it all for us. So we're going to do that. And the Bible says that he, glorify, he will glorify himself throughout all of eternity in us and through us. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And that's what we are part of today. That's what we are celebrating today. That God will use this church, however small and, and maybe and insignificant you may think it is, somehow we form part of this, this incredible thing of beauty that God will use to glorify himself. And I'm just excited to be part of that. So let's, let's start looking at our passage and we'll look at the beginning of the church over here. Acts chapter 2 verse 36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter had just completed his first sermon. He'd, he went out and there were thousands of people that were listening to him and, he's, and the rest of the apostles also were preaching and teaching at this time. But it was the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit had descended upon a group of believers that were praying together. And the Bible says they were in one accord. They were in one place waiting for something to happen. And the Bible says that as, as they were waiting and praying earnestly, the Bible says that a mighty wind came through. The Holy Spirit had come down upon them as they were gathered praying in that upper room. Something had occurred which would change the course of human history forever. Something so spiritually significant in God's eyes that he made sure that there were thousands of witnesses to see it. You see, because if it happened in the middle of nowhere, no one would have taken any notice. But God made sure that at that specific time, at that specific day, there were thousands of men who would see what God had just done. Thousands of witnesses. So there was no ambiguity about what was happening over here. God was birthing his church. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 1. Let's go back and see what had actually happened. It says there, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with one, all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Have you ever, has anyone ever had a dream that they've, that they've been raptured or at the end of the world? Has anyone had a, had a dream like that? I have. And there are intense feelings that went along with it as well. Now, I don't know, it wasn't a vision. I'm not saying it was a vision. It was a dream that I had. And I remember during that dream that I was actually um, walking down the street and I felt something. I heard a trumpet and I actually felt that, that I was being lifted up. And maybe that's, that's my excitement or anticipation with what was going to happen. But there was an intense feeling of, of anticipation here because something was going to happen that I'd never experienced before. I'm not sure if you've ever been in that place. If you've ever experienced something that was the emotion was so strong with the excitement and, and feeling that, that you were overwhelmed by it, that's something I experienced in a dream. But I can imagine the disciples sitting in that room, praying together, not knowing what was going to happen. They didn't know. This wasn't rehearsed. This wasn't planned in a sense. They didn't say, all right, uh, uh, you know, when, 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 when it's time, that window is going to open, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and we're going to have these things lined up like we plan our baptism now. I mean, we plan our baptisms today. You know, I've told the guys, you're going to be standing over there, you're going to be walking over here. And even that, there's an intense amount of stress in, in a sense. There is nervousness that goes with that. There are some people who are worried they're going to be drowned by me, but I won't drown you, I promise. Haven't lost anyone yet. But can you imagine in this particular place at this time what they were feeling? The sense of anticipation, not knowing what was going to happen to them personally. This wasn't something that was going to happen while waiting for an earthquake to occur. This was going to happen to them, each one of them. And they were just there waiting for something to happen. Jesus had promised this to them. So I, I can only imagine what they were feeling at that time. But the amazing thing is, is that just as this church had a beginning seven years ago, we can actually point the day when we had our first service and we had our, we, we had our inauguration. And in the front of this, um, this, uh, this, this pulpit over here, there's a plaque. That, that says when we were actually organised officially as a, as a church and we had special visitors over and we had um, you know, pastors from Benalla who came and visited us and, uh, and a number of other visitors who joined us for that special day. Just as this church had a beginning seven years ago, the Church of Christ had a beginning. It had a beginning in time and there was a specific place and time where God's church actually started the church had not existed up to that point. You see, the church was something new that God had done. He had promised it, and the Bible says it was actually a mystery in the Old Testament. God had, had, God had made an agreement with the people of Israel, but there was no real understanding as to what would happen after. They might have had some idea. God had said in a number of places, I will give them a new heart, and I will put their laws, my laws in their hearts, and you know, the Spirit will be, will, um, will, um, will be given in those days. But there was no real proper understanding until it actually happened. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 4 with me. And we'll look at why the church has started in chapter 2. Now this, this is a point where the disciples were with Jesus. Okay, He hadn't ascended yet. And, and it says, And being assembled together with them, that was Jesus, 
commanded them that should they, they should not depart from Jerusalem. He said, stay there, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptised with water, but ye shall be baptised with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The promise of God's Holy Spirit had not yet come. They were still waiting for it. And though John had baptised with water... To repentance. In other words, John was saying to them, when John preached, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. When Jesus baptised, the Bible says that he baptised with the Spirit of God, not with water. Jesus would baptise people with the Holy Ghost. And this was a direct fulfilment of the prophecy that John the Baptist himself made. You see, John the Baptist said this very same words in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 3, verse 16 says, John answered. So John the, the Baptist said this. He said, saying unto them, I indeed baptise you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latcheth of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptise you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So John had already anticipated. This is a doctrine John already knew. And he said that when Jesus came on the scene, John, John the Baptist said, I'm baptising you with water, but there's one coming after me who will be baptising you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. God the Holy Spirit had worked in the, with people in the Old Testament. We know that because the, the, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God was active in the Old Testament. But God was about to do something completely new that he'd never done before. This was something that they hadn't seen. You see, while the Spirit had come down upon certain individuals in the Old Testament, it was only for a certain time and for certain, for certain reasons. You see, even the, the Spirit, the Bible says, came upon David, came upon Saul. Do you remember Samson with his great strength? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon him as well and gave him his immense, his immense strength. But these, that was a very different thing to what was happening with the apostles over here. Acts 1 said that they would be baptised with the Spirit and that they would receive power when the Spirit came upon them. And Acts chapter 2 says they were filled with the Spirit as well. Go back with me a little bit and I want to show you something that the Lord had promised his disciples to show you the distinction between the, those two things. John chapter 14 verse 16. Now, Jesus is with his disciples here. And this is, this is around the time of the, the Last Supper, before he was being crucified. Okay, Now, up to this stage, the disciples had spent almost three years with him, learning from him, following him, uh, doing the things, casting out, remember, devils, healing sicknesses in his name. Now, I want you to understand something very clearly here. 
Look at verse 16 of John chapter 14. It says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Jesus was saying he was a comforter, but God was going to send another who hadn't arrived yet. So Jesus was with them. The Bible says this comforter, look, in verse seven, look at verse 17, and when the spirit of truth, even the spirit of truth. So Jesus is saying that comforter will be the spirit of God. And this is the important part. Whom the world cannot receive. The world cannot receive the spirit of God. Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. Now listen to this. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. And look at this last three few words. And shall be in you. And shall be in you. Now, the language Jesus uses here is very specific. It's, he says basically the world can't receive the Holy Spirit. It doesn't know him. And it can't even see what he's doing. So do you remember when Jesus was performing miracles? He was performing miracles. He was raising people from the dead. He was curing people with, with, uh, with illnesses that they had no idea about. And they looked at him... And they said, you're doing that by the devil. They actually accused him of being a devil or Beelzebub. He does it by the power of Satan. The point was, they did not recognise the work of the Spirit of God. They thought it was something else. The Bible says that the world does not know him. And it can't receive him. Now, why can't it receive him? Well, there has to be a specific thing that happens for, for someone to receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, in contrast, but you know him to his disciples. You recognise him. You can see what he's doing in people's lives. You understand him. But look at this. It says, you, you know him, for he dwelleth with you. How is he dwelling with them? He was working around them and through them. He was in Christ, revealing himself as well. But then he says, and he shall be in you, which means at that specific time, the Spirit of God was not in the disciples. He wasn't in. Because otherwise Jesus would have said, and he is in you already. He wasn't in them. He was actually working on them, possibly through them, motivating them from an outward point of view. But Jesus was saying... Guys, you're not inhabited by the Holy Spirit just yet. But there will come a day when you will be. He won't just be working with you and around you. He will be in you. That hadn't happened yet. But the beautiful thing about that is they were inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And that happened the day of Pentecost. And ever since then, the Bible says that everyone who puts their faith in Christ opens that door and the Holy Spirit comes in to inhabit them. At Pentecost, the church was formed. The church was given birth. And it happened at, through a work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. And this is the one significant thing that distinguishes the Old Testament from the New. God had never done this before. To plant and keep his Holy, his Holy Spirit in men's hearts. 
And when you consider what the Lord did for us on the cross, it makes perfect sense. It's actually a wonderful picture because, you see, my heart was dirty with sin. My heart was full of, of, of rebellion and, uh, and idolatry and everything else that I, I wanted to do in my life, worshipping myself and everything else around me. I was, in, the Bible says, an enemy of God. I wanted nothing to do with him. The only God that I really knew, beside what I told everyone, was really myself. In this heart dwelt sin and covetousness and everything else. But the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for that sin. He paid for me. And he, in a sense, he could dwell in me because that sin was removed by Christ. When Christ shed his precious blood, he cleansed our hearts of sin and our hearts became a fit habitation for the Spirit of God. That couldn't happen before. Never. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It says, But you're not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if so be, the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Notice I'm, I'm, I'm stressing a particular word here. Because that word, you don't find that phrase being used in the Old Testament. You find it in the New. You find the Spirit of God dwelling in people. And that he only dwells in people because of the, the work that Christ did on that cross. It was finished. And Paul declares here that if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are dead. You died. You no longer live, but God lives within you. And if Christ be in you, then the same way the Spirit of God raised him from the dead, he will raise our mortal bodies as well. This is the hope that we have. And this is the story of the beginning of the church. And the Spirit of God still moves today and inhabits the hearts of men and women who receive Jesus as Saviour. When we celebrate baptism, and we're going to be looking at this now, which brings us to this whole thing of baptism, this is a continuation of what's happening. This is an open declaration of what God has done for us. What he has done in our hearts, we are declaring in a pool of water. And we're saying it in front of everyone. This is what God has done to me. Now Peter had declared the gospel to the men gathered in Jerusalem. And many had believed his message and followed his exhortation. And his exhortation was repent, which means change your mind. Turn away from sin and turn to God. Understand where you've been and what God is offering you. And he says, be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
And look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So Peter had pronounced the gospel. He declared to them Jesus Christ. And if you look at the, you read the whole passage, he speaks a lot about who Christ was, that he was both Lord and Christ. The one they had crucified was the Messiah that God had promised many, many years before. And it says in chapter 2, verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word. What word? The gospel of Christ. The full gospel that Peter had pronounced. They were baptised. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now why were they baptised? Why did they have to be baptised? What's the big deal? I'm a Christian. I'm saved, aren't I? Well, yeah, you are actually saved. It doesn't take... Water doesn't change anything, actually. Some people believe that you know when you, when you baptise someone, somehow that water takes away the sin. But the Bible teaches something very differently. The Bible teaches that it's the blood of Christ that takes away my sin. The water represents something totally different, not the taking away of sin. The, the water represents a tomb. It represents death, believe it or not. Look what it says here. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Turn with me there. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. What baptism represents is that we have actually died. And when you see today's baptisms, you'll understand why. Because what happens is they go back and they go under the water. That's why we baptise underwater. We don't sprinkle. Because if you sprinkle, it removes the whole, the whole purpose of the thing. It takes away the whole meaning of it. But the purpose of, of baptism is that you're showing that you are dying by being buried. And we don't bury people under the earth and then bring them back up. Water is a beautiful way of actually representing it without actually killing someone. Romans chapter 6 verse 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ. Now that's not water baptism. That's by the Holy Spirit. We're baptised into him. We're baptised into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, that's a long passage and it seems quite complicated with what it's explaining. But the picture is quite simple. When we accepted the sacrifice that Christ, Christ made for us on that cross, when we look at that cross and we look at the sin in our lives, what we are doing is we are, we are agreeing with God that there was a substitution that took place on that cross. That Jesus died in my place on that cross. He took my place. He took my sin. And the Bible says that he was a propitiation for us. In other words, he satisfied the full judgment of my sin. In other words, when Jesus died on that tree with the sin of the world on, on his shoulders... My sin was there as well. All my sin was there as well. Everything that was within me, past, present and future, was on him. He became sin for me. 
And my sin was laid on him on that cross. Now, in an amazing sense, if you look at this passage, and this is something maybe God can only fully comprehend because he's the one who orchestrated this whole thing. There's a guy called Frank who somehow, and Frank with all his problems and all his sins and all his rebellion and all the, all the bad stuff that he had, was somehow represented there. I existed somehow on that cross within Jesus. And when he became sin, that was because of me. When he shed his blood, the Bible says, that that blood paid for my sins. And he took all my sins and all all of my bad and he paid for it. And that should have been me up there. The Bible says that he became me. He became Frank. With all his sins, with all his problems, he took my old self on him. And there was an exchange that took place. You see, he took the old nasty Frank, the Frank that has no hope, the Frank that, that, that nothing good could come out of, he took all that and he said, here, you take all the good that I've got. There was a complete and perfect transaction that took place. When they put Jesus in that grave, the Bible says that I died there with him. It was me that was dead because he took me and he buried me with him, my old self. I was there, present somehow. In every legal right, in every potential and legality. So the day that I confessed my faith in him, the day that I put my confidence in him and said, yes, you did that for me. The Bible says that a a perfect transaction took place. God recognised that transaction. And I was never the same again. I understand now that I died with Christ. And I have hope because the Spirit of God dwells within me. Because when God took my old self, he gave me himself. And he made this habitation fit for the Spirit of God to come in and live. And live forever. Because the Bible says the Spirit of God is our earnest. You know what an earnest is? It's my guarantee that he will never leave me nor forsake me. My heart has been forever changed. And God doesn't, the Bible says, repent of his gifts. God does not repent of his gifts. What he gives, he doesn't take away. That God gave me, the Bible says, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he dwells in me somehow. I don't know. I don't know. I don't deserve it. Somehow God says that I made you a fit habitation for my spirit. When we are baptised in the water, what we are demonstrating is what happened to us in a spiritual sense. That is why we fully immerse someone. Because you, have to, you can't be dead with your head still sticking up out of the ground. What we are saying is we died fully. I no longer exist as I was before. The old me doesn't exist. The new me now exists. Baptism is always done by full immersion. 
And the Bible, in, and in the Bible, baptism always follows faith and a profession of faith. It is never done before. Why? Because it wouldn't make sense. When they baptise a baby, the baby has never had an opportunity to see its own sin and to put its faith in Christ. It doesn't make sense. It's the wrong way around. Everywhere in the Bible you find, everywhere, no exceptions, you find people put their faith in Christ, just as in this passage in, uh, in, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They put their faith in Christ. They believe the gospel. They turn to the Lord. He, can, he changes their heart. He makes them a fit habitation for the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in them and they're baptised in the water to show what's happened to them. Even the word baptism, which is simply a transliteration of a Greek word, baptizo, means to dip under, to immerse. There's no other, there is no other uh, translation for that word. And then I want you to look at, look at chapter 2 verse 41, Acts chapter 2 verse 41. So they, were, they received his word, they were baptised in water to declare what had happened to them. And then the Bible says, look, look in verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptised, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now once they had been baptised in water, the Bible says they were added unto them. Now added unto them. If they were added, it means they were actually joined to something that already existed, correct? And that which they weren't part of before. The truth of the matter is they were actually added to the church. They had to be added to something. They weren't just added to a few, a few people that were floating around. This was the church. And when Pentecost came, when they gave their heart to the Lord, when they were baptised and they, they, they declared in a sense that they were dead to their old selves and, and alive to Christ, the Bible says they were added to the church, to the newly formed church. This is why today, when we baptise these people, these candidates, we are going to add them to the membership of our church. Because God takes us seriously. God doesn't believe in maverick Christians, believe it or not. God doesn't have people that sit outside of the church. That's not God's plan. Because if that was God's plan, then half of the scriptures you read in the New Testament don't make sense. You can't have discipline if someone's not a part of the church. If someone flitters from one church to another to another to another simply to find something that they like, but doesn't attach themselves to a church and make themselves accountable to the church, where is accountability? Where is discipline? Where is, the Bible says, to, to honour those, those who are above you? Where does it say that where, where can a pastor or the, or the deacons serve if, they're, if you aren't part of that? It's a bit like being part of a family. Okay, You're part of a family, regardless of whether you feel like you're part of, family, of a family or not. That one you didn't get a choice in. This one you do. This one you have a choice in. It's a bit like marrying someone. When you marry someone, you make a choice to, to, to live with them, to be faithful to them, to serve and love and honour them all the days of your life. It's the same thing with the church. It's an understanding that you have joined yourself in some spiritual union with a local body of believers. Now, do I believe in a universal church? Yeah. I believe in a universal church. I believe that we have a connection with every Christian, genuine Christian, who lives in every part of this world. We are somehow connected with them and when we see them and get together with them, there is a sweet fellowship that we can have. But I don't serve with them. 
I don't live with them. I don't grow with them. I don't, serve, I, don't, I don't minister to their needs. I minister to your needs. And you minister to each other's needs. And the Bible says that as we grow in, in grace and knowledge and, and God helps us to use our gifts, that happens here in a place. Do you notice the disciples, when they were in the upper room, it says they were in one accord and what else? In one place, it says. They were together. It's not a church if you're not together. That's why scriptures say that those we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves. It's important that we get together. That's why you can never have a Skype church in the future. Okay? Sorry for those tech heads out there, but you can't have a Skype church. You can't be sitting in your home one day and the technology is already there. We can actually catch up with, you know, with everyone on the, on the screen of your, of your television or your computer and say, oh, hi there, Saskia, hi there, Maria and, and Paul. And it doesn't work. Church means getting together, seeing people face to face, encouraging one another, bearing one another's burdens, <laughs> teaching one another, putting up with one another. Because we learn as much through dealing with each other here in this place and in this, in this environment as anything else. So God adds people who have been baptised and believe in Christ to the church. And then it says finally, in chapter, chapter 2 verse 42, and it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Okay? The church is the place. The church is the place for doctrine, for fellowship, for breaking of bread and prayer. You can't break bread by yourself at home. The Bible says to come together to pray. The Bible says when you learn doctrine, it needs to be in a church environment. Now we have, we have a lot of access to doctrines all around the world because of the internet. But the problem with that is you need to be careful about how many different doctrines are floating around out there. The best place to learn your doctrine is through your church. Okay? And the Bible says that church is a place of prayer. This is the legacy that's been left to us. This is what commenced at Pentecost. This is the church. And this is what we are continuing today. See these, these few things over here? Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. These are the things that we continue from those days. It hasn't stopped. The church is a descendant. The church here today and the seven years we've been around and the things that God has done is a descendant spiritually from that church back then. It's the same spirit that indwells us, that dwelled in them. The same spirit that dwells in Peter's heart and Paul's and all the other apostles dwells in my heart and your heart now, if you've put your faith in Christ. It's the same baptism that we perform, the same thing. We do it the same way. The Bible says the same doctrine that we hold because we hold to the word of God and we won't let go of it. Regardless of what the, what the world may say or how crazy they think we actually are, we are holding to this doctrine. The same fellowship that we enjoy. The same time we spend together and encourage one another and, 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 and love one another and work for one another and minister is the same thing they did 
2,000 years ago. The same remembrance of the Lord's table that we'll have today as well. <coughs> we remember the same thing and we pray to the same God that they prayed. It's all the same. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as I close off the sermon. Now this is you, okay? This is you. This is not the church at Ephesus. This is you today. Understand. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 says this is about you. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. This small church in Faulkner, as insignificant or small it may be, is part of a building that God is putting together and growing. And it started back then with Jesus himself being the cornerstone of this building and it's built upon the, the apostles and the prophets and all those churches that went before us and all those people that put their faith in Christ. We are somehow connected now to them spiritually and there's going to be a day when God reveals this building. When this building will be complete. And we will be part of it. And the beautiful thing is, the very last verse, which says, In whom ye also build it together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Church, God dwells in you. Think about that. As we celebrate these baptisms now, remember, God has built, is building us up to dwell within us. God dwells in this church. I'm excited about that. I'm not sure if you guys are... I don't know whether you're excited or what's happening in your heart, but I'm excited about the fact that God dwells in this church. So, we're going to have a break now. And it's not going to be a long break. We're going to need about 10 to 15 minutes to, for the candidates to go and get themselves ready um, and prepare themselves. And if I could ask some of the gentlemen uh, here to help us start bringing some chairs into that area so we can sit around the pool area. The heaters have already been turned on in there, so it's nice and warm for everyone. And we'll join you shortly. But in the meantime, please, enjoy the fellowship. God bless you. Thank you.